Reverend Dr. Danielle Timenio Hansen, we're so glad you could be with us today with Three Minute Ministry Mentor. Absolutely, glad to be here. Yeah, and you're coming to us from um, Seminary of the Southwest, where you're an assistant professor of pastoral theology and director of field education. That's right. You wrote a book called God and Harry Potter at Yale. Mm -hmm. And in that book, you tried to just skip over all the fights people have been having at that time about is magic okay or is magic evil or how, what do we do with the magic in Harry Potter? You said, somebody else can deal with that. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about theology and Harry mm -hmm. Potter, right? Yeah. I love that you wanted to think about themes from theology like sin and salvation and grace and, um, and think about how the books and the narratives that, that J.K. Rowling presented offered us an opportunity to think about those kinds of theological themes. Tell me how you decided to write this book. So I had been following the news articles that were coming out and the editorials that were written about the Harry Potter series. And what I noticed was that there was such an emphasis on the role of magic and whether magic was heretical in the series. Mm. And it felt to me like those conversations were overlooking huge parts of what makes Christianity Christianity, yeah. you know, questions about who Jesus is, what evil is, what grace looks like, what the meaning of death and sin are. And so my thought was, if you really want to know whether these mm -hmm. books are, resonate with Christianity, you have to look at those ideas and then think about them in relation to the series. Uh. And so I first did that in the course of um, a, uh, a semester long course that I taught at Yale for undergraduates and then that became the basis of the book. What would you say you learned from actually putting this into practice and teaching the class? Like what was it about doing that uh, live with students? We talked about the literature and theology together that what, what did you learn from that? So I think the biggest piece of learning for me came from the diversity of students in the classroom mm. that every year I taught this class there was enormous diversity in terms of religious background, race, socioeconomics, mm. worldview, politics, and the, especially the first year I taught it, that was very anxiety provoking for me. I was, I was a new teacher. Mm. This was um, pretty much the first thing I had ever had a chance to, to teach in a college classroom. And so I really worried about how we were gonna have really tender, honest conversations about religion, especially when what I saw was that we really struggled to do that culturally. Mm. And, and what I discovered was that my students really rose to the occasion and, and were able to listen to one another and grow from one another. Mm. And they didn't always agree, but, but that was really exciting and heartening and hopeful for me to see. How does that inform somebody who's doing the practice of ministry? I mean, how does that kind of intersection of literature and religion help people who want to be pastors and ministers and activists and chaplains? It's a reminder to me that you have to meet people where they are in order for any conversation to be meaningful to them. Mm. So with the Harry Potter series, that was and still is a very lively cultural touch point, but there are so many others. And mm. so I think whenever a faith leader can take those cultural moments and translate the language of faith through them, 
it's an amazing opportunity for formation and growth for the people you're working with. Mm, yeah, beautiful. Will you take one of the storylines or the characters from the Harry Potter series and help us think imaginatively how that might inform uh, the practice of ministry or some important aspect of learning the practice of ministry? Yeah, the, the example that comes to mind most for me is at the end of book seven, I don't think this is a spoiler, but Harry and Voldemort kind of have this, this showdown and at this point, Voldemort has done a lot of really bad things and hurt a lot of people, and Harry has every reason to be very angry at him. And what Harry says to Voldemort in that moment is try for some remorse. Just mm. try for some remorse. And this moment to me is a really pivotal moment mm -hmm. for a faith leader to think about because I see it as, as an offering of an opportunity for grace. And it really speaks a lot into what grace is, that, um, that, that grace can be offered, but right. if you don't freely accept it, then it's not present, it's not obvious in, in your life. And so what's being asked of us as human beings is not to create our own formation, but to be willing to reach out our hand and say, yes, I will try for some remorse. And in Harry offering that, you know, I think the message that's being given is you can have done some truly horrendous things. You will always be given a second chance by God, but you have to say yes. And, and so that's, that's an example of a moment where I think the life of faith translates really nicely onto yeah. the message of the series. Yeah, it's making me think about how hard it is both to extend that kind of grace as mm -hmm. Harry did it in that moment. He had no reason to. Right. Uh, that in itself is very powerful, but then what you're saying is we all have to take that invitation wherever mm -hmm. it comes from and lean into it for grace to really show up. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Mm -hmm. Wow. The other thing I really loved about what you've said in that book is that no single character really represents God, right? Mm -hmm. But instead, because spoiler alert with your book, right? right? <laughs> it's fine, you can spoil my book. <laughs> is that um, it's really love that mm -hmm. goes throughout the whole series and keeps pointing everyone back to what's greater than all the bad things that happen and all the tragic things that happen. Mm -hmm. Did I read that right? You did. <laughs> yeah, you know, I go through different characters and kind of say, you know, this character has some aspects of, you know, being all powerful, all knowing, all good, these qualities we attribute to God but not all of them. And you can go through that process with a lot of the characters in the series. And I do that in the book to kind of show these are human, they're human characters. And so they're gonna be flawed. And, and yet there's this other thing, love, that does have these attributes. And, and again, it's a, a lovely translation moment to the message of Christianity, which says God is love. And so, that that to me seems like a moment where Christianity and the series are are very closely resonant with one another. At Seminary of the Southwest, you are not only uh, a 
professor of pastoral theology, mm -hmm. you're also directing field education. Mm -hmm. And so you're thinking about the power and the experience of learning and practice. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you might talk to us a little about what you observe and what you've noticed about the power of learning and practice. The most transformative, long-lasting kind of learning that I have seen in my students has been embodied forms of learning. Mm. And so the the benefits that they reap from field ed, they, they experience because they have to bring their whole self mm. to whatever context that they're in. Mm -hmm. And so when I see them preaching their first sermon in their parish yeah. or hear about a conflict that they helped navigate in the parish, I see them getting to finally practice what they're learning in the classroom, and that's giving them skills that stick with them that they can then use outside of seminary. Yeah, for sure. A couple of years ago, you took on uh, the project of trying to interview some of your colleagues in mm -hmm. field education, and I think you were trying to decide how you could improve and and um, maybe deepen the program where you are. Uh, what did you learn by going around and talking with lots of people in field education about how to do this work well? One of the things I discovered from a grant that I had to research field education in different seminaries was that field educators are more and more placing students in mm. a variety of contexts where they can be engaging in ministry. And so what was once just field education in a parish is now field education in a nonprofit or a prison. Mm -hmm. And and what I what I discovered is that um, some schools uh, have great flexibility around that, that students might only do uh, work with, say, a grassroots organization mm. and never set foot in a parish, or there might be a blended set of options for them. The other thing I looked at was the number of hours that students do in field ed and the right. number of years that's required of them. And one of the things that I learned from doing that is that it seems like seminaries are investing more and more into contextual education because it's so beneficial to their students when they graduate. That's right. Mm -hmm. I agree completely. <laughs> the sort of the more field education, the better yeah. as I see it. Um, I'm wondering what you have come to understand as the tools and the skills that you are trying to help students learn while they are in, in this learning and practice. Uh, are there ways that you help them think about that kind of learning so that they kind of handles they can grasp onto and, and move more quickly into embodied relational learning? Mm -hmm. So our seminary tries to structure education around being, knowing, and doing. Okay. And I think the being piece is one of the one of the points that I really want my students mm. to graduate with a depth of knowledge about that they need to have self-awareness, understand who they are in any conversation, what their areas of growth are, what their strengths are, mm. what they can reasonably do and what's beyond their their capability. So that being part is something yeah. that I think they learn a lot about in field ed from coming up against external situations of all kinds yeah. <laughs> in, in the context of them being themselves. And so I think that's one thing I really want them to learn. The knowing piece, I think is, you know, it's kind of obvious they're taking everything they've learned in the classroom and, and bringing it into their 
contacts and, and then they get to do it. So that's that third piece. So I, I hope that when they graduate, they're able to take that awareness of themselves mm -hmm. and, and really, that's um, okay. Oh yeah, that's fine. Mm -hmm. Okay. So our seminary structures education around three goals of being, knowing, and doing. Mm -hmm. And I see all three of them factoring into a student's field education experience. Yeah. They, they really have a chance to grow in their own self-awareness as they navigate whatever context that they're in and notice their areas of growth, their, their strengths, how their family of origin affects how they function. Yep. And, and they're also having a chance to take everything that they're learning in Bible and theology and liturgy and live it out in the context of their field ed site. And, and, and then they're doing it. They're doing the practice of ministry. So this being, knowing, and doing tripartite set of goals is something that is really important to me to make sure that my students are experiencing and growing in. So when they graduate, my hope is that they'll have enough self-awareness and knowledge to do what they have to do well. Let's talk a little about the intersection between family and ministry. You've given a lot of thought to how one understands family. Mm -hmm. And you've written a new book, mm -hmm. and that new book is Conceiving Family, A Practical Theology of Surrogacy and Self. Mm -hmm. Congratulations Thank you. on getting a book out. Thank That's you so much. Wonderful. And uh, I'm really interested to hear about um, how you decided to write this book. A number of years ago, my best friend struggled with, uh, with infertility. Mm. And at that time, I was not married. I wasn't thinking of having children myself. And so listening to her long journey of navigating the process of having a family mm. and really trying to do so using all of the options that were available to her and her husband mm -hmm. was deeply moving for me. Mm. And early in that process, she had asked if I would be an egg donor for her. and. It was one of the easiest, most joyful decisions I ever made. Mm. Um, it, it felt a lot like an opportunity to be an aunt. And as an only child, I was never going to have an opportunity to be an aunt. So mm. that was very special to me. And the way we taught, you know, the way she phrased it, which I thought was so beautiful, was she said, I just feel that there can never be enough people to love your children in a special way. Mm. And, and that really, stuck with me. Mm. And the the procedure that we did wound up not working. And so the children she has are not biologically connected to me. But the experience of the joy of helping someone achieve their dream mm. really stuck with me. At the same time, what I 
discovered in going through the process was that donors and parents are treated very differently by the medical establishment. And so mm. when we would go in for our medical appointments, my friend would sit in the front waiting room, but then they had a separate waiting room for the donors in the back. And, mm. you know, we had said to the secretary, you know, this is a known donor, this is a friend. And they said, but the parents don't like to see the donors. And, and most donors, wow. yeah, most donors are anonymous in this country. Almost all egg donors are anonymous. And so, um, so this was a really interesting experience for me to, to see and you know to hear a nurse say, wow, you're a known donor, we see so few of those. And wow. it seemed really obvious to me that this was you know, a wonderful thing that, that could be done if you felt called to do it. For me, it very yeah. much felt like a calling, but, um, but that there seemed to be this pressure up against parents not to have their identity as parents challenged by the donor. Mm. And that really, stuck with me and I found it really fascinating. It was part of why I wanted to write the book to yeah. press into why do we do that. Yeah, it does say some fascinating things about how we, as you put it, conceive a family mm -hmm. uh, and how we think about who, who is part of a family and maybe who's not. Mm -hmm. um, what, do you, what would you say you've learned as you've gone through these questions about that very thing, like how people are um, conceiving a family in this culture. What, what have you learned about that? So there are a number of psychological studies that have been done that have shown that we as a culture really privilege biology as the basis of family. Mm. Something like 75% of Americans, I think as of 2014 mm. or 2015, were naming biology to some extent as the primary definer of family. And we see that in our legal system, say in the foster system, the goal is always to return children to biological family first, only if that can't happen, you look elsewhere. Um, we see it in things like who you leave money to in a will. Mm. So much more common to leave it to your biological family than to other, other people. So yeah. kind of across the board, there's this privileging of biology that I argue has elevated almost to the point of being an idol or that has elevated to the point of being an idol. Yeah. And, and that means that when an individual can't create a family biologically, they're, they're doing something that's no longer culturally normative and mm. potentially seen as being second class. And, and so one of the things that, that I observed is that infertility and reproductive loss seem to be individual problems that happen to individual mm. women or individual men. Um, and, and really, the cultural experience of navigating infertility and reproductive loss for that individual is heavily colored by these assumptions we have about the biological family. And, and theologically, that seems really relevant and important to me because Jesus is, does not sit around preaching about the importance of biological family. If anything, Jesus talks about casting aside biological family for, yeah. for the broader community of faith to be your family. So right. what I see in culture and in faith are almost in direct conflict with one another. Yeah. 
Where did you go constructively with this book about how we might more justly and more lovingly conceive of or understand family? So I determined, or so I argue in the book that relationship needs to be the starting point for mm -hmm. what family is. And I do that specifically looking at surrogacy and talking about the relationships that could exist between surrogates and parents mm. and that, that do exist in some contexts mm -hmm. that are incredibly life-giving for all the parties involved and that help construct the identity that each of these people feels called to be. These parents feel called to parenthood. That's mm -hmm. something that the body of a surrogate can help with. But for the surrogate, a lot of times there's this tremendous sense of wanting to have a legacy, wanting to fulfill a dream, feeling like she has this power and this gift that she can give in the form of carrying this child. Mm -hmm. And and so the surrogates that I talked to or read about that had the most positive experiences of surrogacy came to it feeling like it was a calling. And so mm -hmm. when we start from this place of saying relationships come first. Mm -hmm. We are constructing each other's identity. We are helping each other live out that sense of call. Mm. That to me seems like the basis of what makes a family. At Three Minute Ministry Mentor, we try to end always with provocative questions. And so I'm wondering what questions have guided you or uh, goaded you into the work that you do or what question you would share with us? I would say that there are two questions that I ask of my students in the classroom and that I also ask of myself in relation to any, say, writing project that I'm mm. going to undertake. And the first one is what's really at stake here? Mm. And the second one is how will this change people's lives? Mm. So those two questions feel like the ones that guide what I do in ministry and what I hope my students will be doing as well. I believe you have just been on sabbatical. What have you learned about the significance of resting? In a lot of ways, my sabbatical didn't feel restful. I had so many projects that I wanted to do, but what it felt was spacious. It and I think for me, spacious and rest seemed very, very similar. The opportunity to have the space to pursue projects that I couldn't do while I'm teaching and in administrative meetings and taking phone calls and seeing students, there's such a gift in having the space to really discern what you feel called to do and then have the space to do it. So. To me, if that's what rest looks like, I've had a lot of it, <laughs> and, and, but, but, but it's been a very productive restfulness. We're grateful that you've taken time to come over and talk with us today about family, about experiential learning, um, about sabbatical, and uh, about um, what really matters in ministry and life. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.